Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Christine Tapley, um, all the way from Langruth. Did I get yeah, pretty good? <laughs> okay, it, it'll do then. Good. Um, and thank you for joining us, Christine. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you're a owner operator of a cow calf operation. I just watched, well, I haven't finished. I just found it and started watching a presentation you gave to an Ontario group back in January. Okay, the Beef Farmers of Ontario, probably. Yes, and um, a, a fascinating story of you <laughs> developing that operation. Um, but I was first introduced to you as an agrologist who works for Ducks Unlimited Canada. And that was after I had seen you on the in the um, Guardians of the Grassland video and contacted some people and then the connection got made. So that's why you're having to put up with me today. So now you know who to thank. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, how you got into the cattle business, how you became an agrologist, or maybe just start on that and I'll ask you some questions along the way. Sure, yeah. So uh, I actually grew up in cattle. Uh, my parents had a cow-calf operation, and um, so not very far from me, just half an hour from where I am now. Um, and for a number of reasons, um, it seemed as though growth in that ranch was not uh, going to happen. The flooding issues and kind of land pressures and, and all kinds of, of issues. And so I actually never thought that I would um, be a primary producer. I didn't think that I would raise cattle myself. I, I went and took a degree um, in agriculture and majored in agroecology. So kind of like the kind of a systems approach uh, to solutions between agriculture and the environment. Um, and then I worked for a little while and ended up going back um, and got a master's in animal science um, looking at greenhouse gases from backgrounding cattle. And um, so through that uh, kind of time at school, I ended up getting a mentorship with um, the Canadian Cattlemen's Association. They have a young leaders program. And, and uh, I had asked to do a mentorship in sustainability, something on a scale larger than my own ranch or, or my research. And, and I was fortunate to be paired with uh, Jeff Fitzpatrick Stillwell, who was at, at the time um, a senior manager of sustainability for McDonald's Canada. And it was right at the time that McDonald's Canada had announced that they would be sourcing uh, verified sustainable beef, um, but they didn't know what that meant. And so what an amazing mentor to have and be a fly on the wall in those early conversations about what is beef sustainability, Kind of those um, beginning meetings. It was all happening at the same time as the Canadian Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. And so after I graduated with my master's, Ducks Unlimited Canada was looking for an agrologist um, to, to kind of be a liaison uh, between themselves and the beef industry. And uh, that person would be uh, their membership representative at the roundtable. And so I like snaffled that up and did my best to, to get that position because it really was, you know, all of my world um, summed up into one job posting. So I was so excited and, and um, them, Ducks Unlimited really recognizing the importance of the beef industry. At the time, I was just building my own cow-calf operation. As I said, they wanted the position to be in Regina. I said, I can't feed cows from Regina. They're going to have to let me have a home office. And they absolutely embraced that, um, really understood that the fact that I was in the industry, um, you know, 
actually participating added a lot of value to my job. So that's kind of a whirlwind tour to how I got here. <laughs> Perfect. Just to to clean up a few crumbs along that trail, you said backgrounding. What oh. define that for people who might not be familiar? No, that. So please catch me up on every time I do that because I I try and edit it. I'm terrible at it. Um, but the idea. Uh, so in a cow calf operation, you will um, raise a calf to a range of weights. So maybe. So first, I'll tell you my personal. Um, so we would wean a calf, so um, take it off its mother, um, start feeding it something other than milk and whatever forage it can gather itself. So separate from, from the mother, and then that calf goes on uh, high protein, so largely forage-based diet. Um, and this is because you don't want to feed high-energy, um, fat-building um, diet when they're that small, you need to grow that frame of and, and muscle before you add that high energy um, diet that we put on the fat later. So uh, especially in Manitoba, we have a, a large backgrounding community. So have those spring calves weaned in October, November, then they eat hay um, and maybe a little bit of grain if it's really cold kind of thing. Um, and then they'll grow slowly uh, over that winter. Typically after a backgrounding ration, they go back on grass for the next summer season, next grazing season. And then from there they might, if they're in a traditional system, they would go into a, a feedlot and get a higher energy proportion in the grass. Well, and, and we've skipped right over where Langruth, Manitoba is. So uh, just in case people aren't really big on their geography of Canada or specifically Manitoba, whereabouts is that located? Yeah, so um, so in Manitoba, I'm only probably three hours off of the U.S. border, so three hours north of the border, and then I'm only three miles off of Lake Manitoba to the west. So um, it's still Southern Manitoba. There's a long ways north of us, but in terms of, um, of major population centers, I'm already getting up north. <laughs> in, indeed. So it, it seems like it's kind of northwestish of um, uh, Winnipeg. Yeah, I'm about an hour and a half northwest of Winnipeg. Okay. And they wanted you in Regina? <laughs> yeah, more central okay. to uh, DU priority area, I guess. Okay. Well, so why why does Ducks Unlimited care about cattle, and what's that about? Yeah. I ask I get asked that question all the time. <laughs> um, but if you if you think about uh, uh, Ducks Unlimited Canada or Ducks Unlimited in general, is is interested in conserving. Um, protecting, restoring wetlands and grasslands across the country um, for habitat. And if we think about who owns the existing habitat, because we've lost a lot, who owns the, the stuff that's left? And it's largely beef producers. Um, if you think about where the grass and water is, um, that's where the ducks live, but that's where the cows live too. And so recognizing that this is a really important audience and if we continue to lose beef producers off the landscape, then that land that was used for raising beef will be converted to some other use, probably crops. And those more marginal lands will get, um, get cultivated and we'll lose all the benefits that were in that grass um, when the cows were grazing. And and that's one of the points that I try to emphasize is that there are there's only so much land that we can use to produce food. And of that land, most of it is not suitable for producing foodstuffs that we can eat directly. Um, and, and that animal source food is essential, I believe, for proper human development and function. And ruminant animal agriculture has some really unique 
ecological advantages. And one would be its role uh, in maintaining grassland health. Yeah, absolutely. So not only is the beef industry important for kind of being a placeholder, as in if they're gone, the grassland likely will go with them, but actually just the interaction of grazing. And if you think of how those grasslands, how that ecosystem evolved over time, it was evolved under a large ruminant grazer, bison, right? And, and so over many, many, many years, um, this interaction of grazing and rest and grazing and rest, that's how this ecosystem developed. And so if we are just to just um, remove the cattle, but then leave that land stagnant, which by the way, would never happen because have you seen land prices? Something's going to happen with that land. Mm. Um, but if we were just to leave it stagnant and, and not touch it, not graze it, not have that interaction, then all that nutrient material gets grows up into the plant and stays there. There's nothing to cycle it back down and, and to feed the soil ecosystem and to um, you know take those nutrients and bring them back down into that soil or to use their hooves to trample the seeds back down to plant those, those new um, plants or to have the little plants that just grow at the surface um, take some of the material away so that sunlight can come down to those plants. And it's a, it's a huge community that lives in that grass. And uh, and it, it's important to have that grazing interaction um, for both the grass and the soil. If you take it away, it's not going to be sustainable. I um, believe it was from Guardians that I heard the quote about cattle share the ecosystem. Whereas when we go into commodity cropping, or actually any kind of cultivation that we're, we're dramatically changing that ecosystem. Yeah, right. To, to have to turn that grass upside down and, and expose those roots and expose that soil. It's, so for one, if you want to talk about carbon, everybody's interested in talking about carbon. Well, that soil, especially if it's a native ecosystem that has never been broke up, holds a lot, a lot, a lot of carbon. And when you cultivate it for the first time, some people say it's 30% loss, some people say 50% loss of the carbon that's in that soil is now put up into the atmosphere. And yeah, when you plant it back down and you, um, you know, grow crops well, uh, maybe if you replant a perennial um, plant that is able to sequester carbon, you can start building that carbon back, but it'll take, I've heard, a hundred years to get to get that carbon back up. So, so I think that there are some great things that we can do with carbon sequestration and, and different grazing techniques and things like that. But first and foremost, we need to keep the grass that we have because, man, it's going to be pretty hard to catch up if we continue to lose. Actually, I wrote down a stat I read um, the between 2014 and 2018, loss of grasslands across the Great Plains has occurred at an average rate of four football fields every minute. Mm. Yeah, like I can't even comprehend <laughs> the scale of land. Yeah. That so is, is that Canadian football or U.S. football? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, in, indeed, the, the, the loss of this ecosystem, and I've recently put up some posts about, you know, virtually 80%, I think that was the number of the prairie in North America has been converted already. And 90 some percent, virtually all of the tall grass prairie is gone and two thirds of the mixed and short grass prairies. So it's it's important for us to be concerned about ecosystem degradation. We seem to be focused on certain ecosystems and ignore other ones. And uh, you know maybe it's my bias, but I think that grasslands ought to receive more attention. And in fact, um, I just saw a presentation yesterday where people who are proposing reforestation, okay, globally. 
uh, as a means to uh, mitigate against climate change. But they were looking at grasslands and savannas and saying, well, no, 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 those need to be in trees. It's like, maybe there's a reason they weren't in trees to begin with. And um, maybe grass has a value beyond your perception of it. So in addition to food production, there's wildlife. There's uh, water quality issues. Uh, I heard somebody describing grasslands as the kidneys of the planet um, to, to filter the water. Um, but certainly when we're not plowing, when we're maintaining vegetative cover, we don't have the water erosion. We don't have the wind erosion. So the water quality is improved. Um, I mentioned wildlife, but that's critical. Um, and, and if we're not grazing, some of these ground nesting birds aren't favored when we have the tremendous overburden from a forage agronomist perspective. Uh, fire mitigation, um, that was another one I heard just yesterday that um, in California, we have a history of suppressing wildfires um, and, and, and not utilizing grazing as a tool to remove fuel, except that some First Nations people have been able to utilize fire in the lands that they are managing. And so the ranching community kind of like, what are you doing? And they said what they were doing. And they're like, we've been trying to do this for decades. How can we help you? Um, so um, people coming together to utilize a tool that isn't favored in one part of the bureaucracy, but is in another, but it's a tool. It's, it's not the kind of a problem that it has been in Australia, California, Southern Europe. I mean, the, we, we see this pattern being repeated. Um, the, I, I, the, the issue of wildlife and also a minute, uh, just aesthetics, I guess is the word. Um, somehow I'd rather look at grassland than canola, nothing against the national crop, but, um, it, it just, there, there, there's so much there. Um, oh, we say grassland and many people just look and, oh, that's grass. And I was just walking with a friend today and said, you know, first of all, look at the flowers on the grass. And they were looking for like of oh, those little date. No, no, no. The grass has flowers, <laughs> and <laughs> and look at how many different kinds of grass there are just here in this you know square meter off the walking path. So mm. when we say grasslands, there's this tremendous wealth of different plants. Yeah, absolutely, and and that again varies as you go across the province or the country or North America, right? I I think it is a a very rich, um, interesting ecosystem. And and to your point about wildlife and and that loss, um, since the seventies, we've lost eighty seven percent of prairie obligate. So, um, for example, grassland birds that you had mentioned that require prairie, um, we've lost a, an amazing number of that population. There's lots of threatened species that um, just don't have, that need those big, wide open grass spaces and they just don't have them anymore. And I think, so you bring up canola and, and I think it's, um, I want to point out that I'm not anti-green. <laughs> I mean, I like beef, <laughs> first and foremost, <laughs> but but I, I think we have to recognize that there's only one landscape, there's only so many acres. We need to figure out how to grow crops as efficiently as possible, allow crop producers to use all the tools that they have in their toolbox. That I think there's nothing frustrating more than telling them they have to do more, but they're not allowed to use all of the science that we have. And then also recognize how important it is to have this conservation for all of the rest of the things that live there too. And, and there's gotta be a way that we can all kind of play in the sandbox um, together. 
But until the commodity price that comes off of the canola field equals the commodity price that comes off the grassland, we're going to continue to see that conversion. I mean, and I, I think sometimes people will think it's, you know, a grain farmer or a beef producer. But that's not the case. And I don't know what the stat is in, in the U.S., but in Canada, 60% of our beef producers are mixed operators. So if he's not making any money on the beef side, he's going to try and grow canola, right? And I, I don't think that that's anybody's fault other than that that's what we're paying him to do. And, and so I, I think that there's, a, there's bigger problems than, um, than just our wants to keep it grass. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and uh, it's true. I, I think, first of all, certainly on this side of the border, we seem to have devolved into an us and against them <laughs> in everything. Um, and, and then we also hear arguments against animal agriculture as if there is crop agriculture on one side and animal agriculture on the other, and they can somehow be separated. And, and this is just not possible. Um, and, and, and at the same time, there's very interesting research that's looking at the integration of livestock back into our North American cropping systems and our European cropping systems. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, these are sorts of things that are still a reality in other parts of the world, although some very interesting research going there as well. Um, so I, I see that very much the future. But on the land that you managed to manage at this time, um, Goodness, you're ranching on an old gravel quarry. Tell us about how you do that. I talked about land prices. It's tough to get land. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, it was it was cheap. <laughs> no uh, doubt. <laughs> yeah. So as a new farmer. Right. So I, I came from cattle, but don't uh, farm with my parents. And uh, my husband grew up in the city. Uh, he took an agronomy degree. And, and so he his plan had been to <laughs> his plan had been to grain farm on his grandparents farm. And, and it, it didn't come together. Succession plan wasn't there. And so we kind of introduced him to cattle. We rented some land and and took a, a you know, annual loan out or a year loan to to do that grass cattle. So to, to add, take some backgrounders and grass them like we talked about at the beginning. Um, and then I got greedy and ended up breeding them, was going to sell bread heifers or, or bread cows and uh, it didn't, didn't work. There was a drought and we had feed. So we ended up keeping them and calving out 75 <laughs> heifers our first year. Um, it was a big learning curve for both of us. I mean, Graham had never even been in cattle, so, um, <laughs> but he's still here. <laughs> Good on him. Yeah. And, and so, you know, realizing that this is something that we wanted to do, um, started trying to put together a land base. Cause I think that that's something people romanticize this idea that if you are a rancher, you have this big block of land and you can just move your cattle around from, you know, open a gate. I mean, it's just so easy, but no, man, if, if you, I, like my parents are a century farm, so there is a pretty good block there, but, but trying to piece it together um, from the beginning, uh, it's like a giant game of risk. It takes a long time. And, and so we come upon this piece of, I think there was, there was three quarters, but there was only, maybe 60 or 70 acres of it was a spent gravel pit. And this, the stuff that wasn't a spent gravel pit was next door to the gravel pit. So you can imagine it really wasn't good land to be doing. And so we ended up accessing this program that helped us you know, remediate or um, spread the topsoil that was left, which was very little, um, back over the exposed land and then we did some bale grazing so where we take ground bales okay out put, set them out on the land and then bring the cattle to them 
rather than feed the cows in the pen. Um, let them eat that down, and then the stuff that they don't eat kind of blankets the the soil, <laughs> and they you know the manure that they they leave out there gives that nutrient, and so just to give it some kind of armor. And we were able to get you know some growth going, and as you get that biomass, and then trample it down, and biomass, and trample it down, and, and if you keep doing that and and giving it rest to to uh, kind of heal itself, that's how you build that layer over the gravel and you start to build soil. And so we've had some great luck. I think we've bought that piece in 2013, maybe. And so we just were taking out pears on the weekend out there and grass looks great. So it's uh that was the, the first piece that we bought and and um you know we've grown since then and and it's been really exciting to see that change. We have some wildflowers growing there now and see all kinds of different wildlife. Every time we go up there, it's, uh, that's, that's the really cool thing about, I think, being a, a cattle manager or a grass manager is getting to, getting to see how your um, management truly does impact or, or make positive change on that landscape, especially, I mean, when you're starting with a gravel pit, it's easy to see positive progress. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It just sounds so picturesque. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and actually, so that being what it is, but in the surrounding areas, um, and even some of that now that we've been able to kind of rehabilitate back to a state that you would have never known there was a gravel pit there was actually uh, I think we'll be putting an easement on it and so it'll never be broke uh, or cultivated or you know drained um, into the future so that's that's exciting mm -hmm. for us kind of a you know a rubber stamp that we made it yeah mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so what sorts of, I'm going to jump back to Ducks Unlimited Canada, Ducks Unlimited US. What, what sorts of things are, are there programs from the conservation side that help producers deal with some of the challenges that they have from the cattle industry side? Yeah. So that's the whole idea I guess you know Ducks and Limited have been working with with beef producers from the their beginning 80 some years Excuse me. and so it's all about how to keep that habitat in place and, and sometimes that means you know or most times that means some kind of uh, monetary incentive to the producer so maybe it's to help out with um, forage seed costs so to take annual crop land and convert it into perennial cover for 10 years. That's one of the programs we have up here. Um, we do some purchasing of land, of annual crop land, sew it down to perennial cover, put an easement on it, and then sell it back to the beef industry at a discount. So 30% less than what market value would be. So again, to try and give, give them a bit of a leg up and get our our mission accomplished as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and really trying to open up to different options for crop producers as well. Um, so there's a program now called the Marginal Areas Program. And so sometimes in somebody's field, there are saline areas or areas that just don't produce very well. And yet every year you, you know, pull implement over them and that spray and feed and whatever else you do um, over there and it's really not making any money it's probably costing you money and so with the amazing computers they have now attached to those tractors they can kind of delineate those areas and, and figure out where they are and then we'll pay you to take those areas out of production and plant them to some kind of like a pollinator mix maybe um, and so again, they would stay out of production for 10 years. So it's a win-win, but again, trying not to just tailor to the beef industry, but recognizing that it's a landscape effort and it's a working landscape. Right? Mm. Mm. Um, so you mentioned the, the Canadian Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. You mentioned 
um, working in the sort of defining what sustainable beef means after a commitment has been made to source it, which is <laughs> so what does sustainable mean to you? What does it mean now in the community as an accepted sort of definition? Yeah, so now, man, I should have that one can being a, a counselor on the roundtable. But um, yeah, I, I think that a lot of work went into kind of um, determining A, where we're at. So the CRSB did a, mm-hmm, they did a national beef sustainability assessment. So to really benchmark where we're at now or where we're at back then, because we're actually this year, um, coming up to uh, the next sustainability benchmark. So we'll be able to kind of see how how we've done over that first um, term and, and see and, and really use that benchmark then to set industry goals um, for, you know, things like water and uh, food waste and um, land use. Um, and then there's also, of course, an economic side of, of things and, and social aspect, I think that um, you know different kind of labor concerns and things like that. But as far as the animal, animal welfare, I think it's always been kind of growing, uh, growing reviews on that end. But some they've tried, I think, to to set some pretty um, remarkable goals this time around. So in Canada, our plan is to. Um, maintain the 35 million acres of grass that we have left, which I think is aspirational given the rate of loss that we know um, is occurring. But if you don't set, if you don't draw the line in the sand, then how are you going to make it stop? So I think that that's um, that's really exciting. The, another goal, I believe, is a 50% reduction in food waste. So that's one I think that when we talk about um, beef sustainability, people quickly um forget about that part uh that it's you know not just when it leaves my operation that um the sustainability story ends it's um where it goes from there how we use it how much we throw out in our little ziploc containers from the fridge and and that kind of thing too so um yeah so that was the first step uh, they benchmarked we're benchmarking again to continue to set those continuous improvement goals um, but another really cool thing that the CRSB has been able to do is to create a sustainability framework. And so it's a certification system. So we have a third-party auditor that will come on to my farm, your farm, and then there's a list of indicators or kind of like a sustainability checklist for determining what sustainable practices are. Um, and so if I go through the checklist with that auditor and, and get certified sustainable, um, then I can market my beef as such. But the thing is, it goes all the way through the whole beef value chain. And so if that animal makes it from one end of the production cycle to the other, um, going on only certified sustainable operations, then we call it certified sustainable beef. And, uh, and, and then it's a sourcing, a sustainable beef sourcing. Mechanism. So McDonald's is one, one group that is, um, is selling beef with that rubber stamp on it, which is very, very cool. Oh gosh. I, I think it's 14 million pounds of beef. We've been able to put through the, the program, 1300 beef operations. So, I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, it's still not big enough. But it's it's exciting um, that we're able to. Sorry, and then I forgot to mention it. If you get all the way through the system, then each person who touched that animal um, does get a bit of a, a monetary incentive um, for having yeah. having um, produced that meat in that way. So, are you aware of a similar thing in the U.S. with the U.S. roundtable? Um. So I don't believe that they have the. Um, oh no, I, I shouldn't. Don't quote me. No, no that's <laughs> I know fine. that they they definitely the roundtable is there, and they definitely do have um, um, those indicators and, and a, a system. But I don't know how the um, like the incentive. 
Yeah, f- fair enough. Um, is is the 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 I don't know if you called it a checklist or sustainability criteria. Is that a public document that people can see? Yeah. So if you go on the Canadian Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, I think it's crsb.ca. Um, mm-hmm. And there, underneath there's a, a framework section of the website. There will be one for producers. So, you know, those the cow-calf operators. And then there'll be also, there's also one for processors. So the Cargills of the world, the JBSs, um, they go through as well. So there's an environmental component um, and then social questions. Um, I think that they... I don't believe that it, there's any uh, economic indicators. It's more like if we can build this <laughs> and help mm-hmm. these people um, produce more sustainably, that would be the the, um, the economic benefit. Yeah, I th- I think that we we need to acknowledge that if you can't make a profit, there's no sustainability. Um, and regardless of where you are on the journey towards some goal, you have to be able to economically be sustainable. Um, But that word sustainability has many meanings. And I always like to say, what exactly do you mean by it? Because I think I know what I mean by it. Um, I've been talking to people for some time about, I, I want to include the health of the human consumer at the end of this chain. Um, We talk about ecosystem services. There's been some effort in the US to put a monetary value on those economic, those ecosystem services. And when they do, it ends up being a net positive for which the rancher is not currently compensated. And that's without the potential health impacts of consuming that product, Mm -hmm. which I'm going to argue could be massive in terms of its impact. Um, and it's tricky, I understand. There, there's lots of ground in there that needs to be worked and probably some more bales that need to be fed out on top of the rocks or whatever the analogy is. But um, for too long, the beef industry has been blamed for health outcomes. And I think we have to get better at pushing back against that. Um, um, so let's see, we've talked about a number of topics. Um, and what, what you, so you mentioned agrologist and that's a word that I'm not all that familiar with and I still struggle with. So what is an agrologist? Yeah. So to me, I guess is, uh, an agrologist is, um, you know, the, the study of agriculture or, or being, uh, the professional that delivers uh, the science of agriculture. So if an agronomist uh, studies how plants are grown and helps you um, deliver science on how to grow your crop, then an agrologist is more general than that to be all agriculture. And so I would be an agrologist who focuses on, on beef, right? And so my background being in um, beef cattle and, and greenhouse gases from from beef so to to get my status as an agrologist i uh there's a manitoba institute of agrology so there's a an ethics component to it and um and understanding kind of your how your professional um opinion can can really matter to people when it has to do with their businesses and how we apply the science that we know to their to their farms so it's a, you know, it, it, in Ducks Unlimited Canada, it has very much an environmental uh, component to it, I, I believe, if I think about the other agrologists that have been hired. Um, it has, there's a big component of how agriculture works on, on the landscape and, and how we interact with the landscape. Um, but I think more broadly, it's just delivering the, the science of hmm. Eric, would you agree with me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Guardians of the Grasslands, um, that was a product of the Canadian Roundtable, is that correct? Or? Uh, no, so there was um, uh, the Canadian Cattlemen's Association, Ducks Unlimited Canada, and Nature Conservancy Canada. 
came together um, to to make that film. Well, of course, Story wrote with me, who are the people who so eloquently filmed that and got all, oh man, the, the visuals in that um, that they pulled together were really incredible, weren't they? Mm-hmm. I, I, it's one of those things where I I was hearing about it, you know, seeing little blurbs and and then the world went crazy and so whatever else happened to the timeline and and so finally to see it fully released i i was very happy to see that and anxious to watch it and then watched it and went wow this is this is very good um to tell this story to the the population that really doesn't understand the value of grasslands, the the role of ranching in grassland management. And it's not to say that everything's fine in ranching and we can't do things better. We all know that's not true in anything humans do. Um, <laughs> why should ranchers be any different? Um, again, though, this, this point of um, we need, we need, the products of the ranching enterprise. We need agricultural products. And yet, how do we do that in a way that at least maintains, if not arguably enhances the environment in which it takes place? Those options aren't that numerous in today's world. And I've been learning more and more about what it looks like in the low and middle income countries. And um, one of my lines is that we have very high quality scientific evidence of the harm that comes to human beings who don't get enough animal source food in their diet. And we really don't have equal quality evidence that supports the idea of too much. And, and that's, that's a story for later and you don't have to buy into my shtick at all. Um, but we do have billions of people in the world today that are malnourished um, by the definition. I mean, we have 800 million that don't get enough calories, and then we've got 2.2 billion that are overweight or obese. That's a form of malnutrition. And we have all these chronic diseases that are now a bigger killer globally than the infectious diseases. And yet we have this growing body of evidence that says, you know, if you eat this kind of food as opposed to that kind of food, we can actually reverse these chronic diseases. And um, talking to people in Africa um, about their cattle industries and what they need in order to advance them in order to um, increase sustainably their um, operations. Um, and I just see it as, as a tremendous area of hope, but we need more things like Guardians of the Grassland to reach an audience that has never thought about these things because we haven't done a good job of reaching them yet. <laughs> exactly. I, you know what? And I think that that's, you've touched a lot of things right there. Um, but for North Americans, what is in our backyard as, you know, the most endangered ecosystem in the world, that's in our backyard, you know, and I think it's easy to blame folks that are cutting down rainforests to grow soybeans or to raise beef cattle. Um, but man, this is in our backyard. Do you think we should fix that before we start throwing stones? Like, I'm sorry, I, is, that a, is that a plank in your eye? Would you like to... <laughs> It's yeah, it's uh, it's frustrating, I think, and um, and and on a on a global scale, I, I think the global beef conversation is much different than the North American conversation because everywhere in the globe doesn't didn't start with grassland. The 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 slate that was here before we got here was not prairies. That happens to be where we are, and that happens to mean that beef cattle are important to that um maintaining that system um but that's not the way it is everywhere and and i understand that but don't discount the fact that that is what we have here mm. and man 
I I have been able to learn very little about um, some different, you know, beef operations um, in other areas. And like you say, developing, I, I think that it's, it's, it's an amazing, uh, important part of culture um, for everywhere in the world. I mean, if you're in it. And, and it's an, I, I'll leave the nutrition side to you. I, I do recognize that beef holds a very, is a very nutrient dense, um, you know, food. And, and I've been told by nutritionists if I want to, to take something to my grandmother, you know, she's in the hospital, take her some beef. <laughs> because if she's only going to take two bites, at least you got as much as you possibly could into her in those two bites. You know, or my three-year-old who's like eats like a bird. <laughs> what are you gonna give him? You're gonna make him eat his meat. <laughs> mm. um, but yes. yeah, I, I but I do think I I've been able to uh, have some conversations in, in different parts uh, of the world. I got to visit um, in Mozambique in Africa and got to do some elk calls with a veterinarian and. Um, and so, you know, somebody had sent a box of an aid box to this group, and and there were different things like you know castration tools and things like that. And, and like, what are these? Like, they didn't send any instructions. You know, like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Not that they didn't know what it was, but that that man. Yeah. That's if I think about the vaccination protocols that we have here in Canada and. And the the nutrition um, stuff that I go through every year, work out what rations I'm going to feed my animals, and you know, get down to the decimal places, and and yet there are lots of places that we sure I think we could help, given the the level of um, efficiency I think that we're producing beef in Canada. Well, I saw a picture of you trying to put a, sorry, I didn't mean to imply anything, um, uh, <laughs> inserting a probe into this, this you know, round bale of hay. Um, uh, why do you do that? He, he asked a leading question. <laughs> well, I'm not sure which probe you are looking at, but there's lots of different reasons. So while you're haying, um, to make sure that it comes up in good quality, I test for moisture. And make sure that it'll um, it will uh, its shelf life will be good, <laughs> or that it won't mold or cause any kind of issues that way. But then um, once we have gathered up all the feed that we use, um, that's another uh, I think interesting point that maybe we could get to later is the the idea that not everybody just feeds all the same thing. Um, all winter long or all year long and in fact byproducts from other industries or grain that didn't meet human use standards gets eaten by the rumen that's the beauty of the rumen you can put things in there those little bugs will go to work and it will produce a burger <laughs> you know it's an amazing machine and so Absolutely. yeah so i do feed tests everything that comes onto the farm whether it's different kinds of green and straw or hay or silage or you know pea byproduct or yeah. carrots we've had carrots before all kinds of stuff and get those get a nutritional analysis on them and then i have a cow bites it's called a program that helps me work out um what mix of of ingredients will get me the right nutrients for what stage of animals. So I feed different rations to my cows at different uh, stages in their gestation as they grow their calf and different age of their life if they're uh, a lean calf and to my bulls so who I'm trying to develop and, and you know, grow that frame. And yeah, so it, I, and then I have, so <laughs> my husband laughs at me because I take, you know, all of these feed tests and I, have them all spread out and then I have a spreadsheet of an inventory. So I have like 26 of these bales and 140 of these and 506 of these and then try and work out how to feed them all out so that uh, we don't have minus at the end of the year. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So cow bites is B-Y-T-E-S. Um, <laughs> and, and then it's interesting because you make this a menu, some might say, or a ration or several rations, as you mentioned, different classes of, of, of your animals. And then you check the results. You weigh the animals to, <laughs> to make sure you don't blame the cow. <laughs> you adjust the diet. What a remarkable idea. Um, so the, the, that's, again, something I just try to point out to my friends who are coming from the human side of things is, is that there is that there are these differences between human nutrition and animal nutrition um so you um there was something you wanted to come back to i thought oh, um just just the the idea that um Oh, the di don't feed the same thing all the time. Yes. Well, and and everybody doesn't feed the same thing. So we're utilizing all these different resources. Um, we're upcycling all these to make them far more valuable. So we're increasing the quantity and improving the quality of humanity's food supply. This is mm -hmm. not competition. Um, that's a critical point that frequently gets lost. Uh, you mentioned the off-grade grains. So one of the things I've noticed is that people, it's ha very hard from the data to separate out the grain that's fed to cattle from the grain that couldn't be fed to people. Right. And, and, and yeah. so there and, and one would have to think that the grain that isn't fed is isn't capable, isn't of grade, would be lower cost than the grain that is. And then you earlier were mentioning um, why you're not feeding these grains to background. Well, because that's expensive. Um, and so the, the, we all know that the cattle industry is just operating at these incredibly high margins right now. You're just making so much profit. It's no, I'm kidding. Um, so when 70 That's why to 80, I have a second job with that. <laughs> yes. And, and does your husband still have a second job too? Yeah. Um, and, and why uh, calving season is sort of a family affair at this point. Um, so when um, 70 to 80% of your expense is feed costs, then whatever you can do to lower that is going to be the biggest impact that you can make on your profitability. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you live in somewhere as cold as Manitoba. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, we budget for 200 days feeding every year. And that's, yeah, so, you know, and we can lessen that because of stockpile graph and good grass management and stuff like that. But you don't always, even with that, it doesn't always work out for us for other reasons we had massive storm and Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving a couple of years ago and got you know three feet of snow and cows were all still out in pasture and had to come home <laughs> well and and for the folks south of the border oh, your Thanksgiving is a month earlier than yes, ours October. at least a month yeah it's the yeah. beginning of October right yeah so so that's almost two months early uh to be getting that much so how much so cows can cows can graze through snow for a while, but if it gets too deep or worse, if there's ice on top of it. Yeah, so um, the, the opinion of that is going to vary greatly, <laughs> I would say. Because okay. I've, I've seen cows, you know, um, put their heads right under a snowbank to, to dig in for swap grazing or different different things like that. We um, we corn graze, so we grow corn specifically for grazing and then take cows out to the field using electric wire to partition off how much they will use in a couple of days and let them just eat it standing. Um, and so sometimes there's piles and piles of snow out there when they when they go out there. Um, but 
like you say, that if you're stockpile grazing, so that snow is actually covering the grass, you just need to make sure that you have backup plans. Um, Because like you say, if you get that ice cover and and there's an issue or if it, you know, if you get too late in the season and it starts to melt or, you know, rot or something. um, I I think that the importance the important thing to remember when extensive grazing those different is to have lots of backup options. Um, you can't just bank on it always. But that said, there's some there's lots of people um, in Canada and even more in the states, of course, that graze all year round. It depends on your resource bank, and that's well, the beauty of the location. Yeah, yeah that, well, that's the beauty of the the beef industry and why creating a sustainability metrics is really really hard because everybody has an entirely different resource you know if you think about one of the most stressful things for a cow is is wind exposure because you know keeping her heat the wind can really um, cool her body down quickly so uh, wind is an issue um and so maybe having you know wind protection built uh, for somebody in Saskatchewan would be an important sustainability in- indicator for animal welfare. But if that same indicator is there for somebody in BC who lives in the middle of the, you know, forest. Rainforest. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You probably don't need any windbreaks built. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, where could, if, if, if people wanted to learn more about any of the, th- oh, wait a minute. Yeah, you mentioned swath grazing. Let, let, not let that one go by. What does that mean? Sure. So, um, so another form of winter feeding would be to grow um, whatever, the, whatever the crop is. Maybe it's, you know, peas, oats. Um, maybe it's some kind of forage, whatever it is. Um, but then leave it in the field, just swath it into rows. And then again, partition it off with electric fencing um, to only give so many swaths at a time. Again, it, it just prevents you from having to bail it up yeah. or package it up somehow, haul it all the way home, put it in a pen, have the manure in the pen, have to remove the manure. Why not just take them out to the field? So Yeah, I've seen a, I've seen a bit of that in... in um... Alberta, but I don't know the difference between their snowfalls there and you. Uh, I suspect they may get a little less. Um, but well, they have the beauty of the Chinook too. So it uh, it comes and then it melts. <laughs> we don't have a Chinook. <laughs> no. So, uh, but you you probably got mosquitoes, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> Do you have black gnats too? No, not here. Oh, good. <laughs> Big horse flies, though. I... <laughs> no. <laughs> Everyone has that. No. It's good, though, because, you know, with the mosquitoes, we say that the size of ducks, and that's really just to keep people away so that we have a low population. <laughs> you say the size of ducks? Is... <laughs> I, what, what's the joke? In, in, in Minnesota, they've got two sizes of mi- mosquitoes. They've got the small ones that can fit through the screen and then the big ones that just tear the screen off and come in. <laughs> That's about right. <laughs> um, so do you, um, if somebody wanted to learn more about anything that we've spoken about, do you have some resources? Uh, you mentioned the Canadian Roundtable. I'll be sure to put a link in. Uh, I'm going to put a, a, at least a link into a recent conversation that you gave to Ontario farmers. Um, okay. uh, Ducks Unlimited Canada was another one that you mentioned. Um, any others that you think people uh, want? Well, the link to Guardians, man, I oh. would love everybody to watch that video. I think uh, anybody who is on or near or cares about grassland, I think, uh, should be able to see that film. I, I think I think what's great about it is that it's not gloom and doom. It's really recognizing the power of this, you know, of this relationship that conservation and cattle have. And, and it's a good news story that it's not often one you hear about beef cattle. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Um, and also, um, um, 
getting acquainted with a group of people who are promoting the International Year of Rangelands and Pastoralists. Yeah. Okay. Which is 2026 they're trying to get. So, they, you know, more support for that. I can add a link and I probably should do more because they've got some really nice videos from all around the world, people who are pastoralists and sharing uh, what that's like. Today's guest has been Christine Tapley. Thank you, Christine, for joining us and look forward to maybe getting to visit your part of the world someday when I can cross ah. the border legally. Yeah, that would be wonderful. But yeah, of course, any time that I get a chance to talk about grass and cows and what it means to me, that the better. <laughs>